I want to encourage you in the meantime to grab your Bible, your pew Bible, your personal Bible, and turn to Acts chapter 15, starting on uh, 923. Uh, just a word of thanks first to, for, to Nathan for taking a week of vacation and then coming back and preaching. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. And listening to his sermon, he knocked it out of the park and just nailed it. Uh, I'm glad to have a, a brother who will co-labor with me and do the hard work of preaching and studying. So this morning, thanks Nathan, you can, you can go now. I have no other accolades for you. <laughs> This morning, this is what I want to do. Uh, we are going to start at verse 1, and then we're going to go to 35. I know that last week, Nathan started at verse 1 and went to verse 12. And I was supposed to pick it up on 13 and go all the way to 35. But often, as you know, context is king. Understanding the context of something, what is going on, helps us understand and interpret what is to come. And so what I want to do is, for the sake of ending chapter 15, I want us to go backwards so that we can go forward best. Does that make sense? So, listen to what we're going, listen to uh, the word of the God, God's holy inspired word, starting at verse 1, going to verse 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and, and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know, in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he had did to us. And he made no distinction between them, us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we have been saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And he listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon had related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this words of the prophets, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. 
After this, I will return and I will rebuild the, the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seems good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep these things, uh, keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Again, one of those little greetings. Farewell. And so when they were sent off, They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I believe that the book of Acts was skillfully written by by Luke so that at several points throughout this this gospel narrative, dramatic turning points are, are placed to keep this account moving on, revealing that there are different seasons within this early church. The the events recorded in Acts 15, the so-called Jerusalem Council, compromises one such of these turning points for the early church. One commentator by the name of Everett Harrison said this, the growth of the Gentile church at Antioch must have raised many questions. But apparently it was the establishment of, of the Gentile churches in Asia Minor that stirred into action a certain segment in the Jerusalem church. The meeting in the holy city was a momentous gathering for the future of the Christian cause. The believers were haunted by the specter of two churches existing instead of one. It was a big deal. 
that they gathered because the thought of creating a Gentile church and a Jewish church was just too much for them to fathom. They had a huge task of coming together to preserve the unity of the church, the mission of the church, and the glory of God. It's essential that we understand this historical context, that the historical context that led to the events of chapter 15. As the church was increasingly becoming Gentile, so the opposition became far more intense, particularly those who were committed in Jerusalem. It looked very different. They were doing different things. This is not the church that we know or experience. Things are different. The disagreement, and therefore this disagreement between Paul and the the Judaizers who were out in the Gentile church who were taking this message, were not just merely academic routines. Well, what do you believe about this? Well, what do you believe about this? It was far deeper and far more important than just theological gymnastics. John Stott says this about exactly what was at stake. Circumcision was a God-given sign of the covenant. And doubtless, the Judaizers were were stressing this, but they were going further and making it a condition for salvation. In other words, they must let Moses complete what Jesus had already begun and let the law supplement the gospel. The issue was immense. It was critical. The way of salvation was at stake. The gospel was in dispute. The very foundations of the Christian faith were being undermined. This was a critical discussion. It was not just a worship war. It was not about whether we do liturgy or whether we do psalms or hymns or have a guitar or or a drum or an organ or a piano. It wasn't those kind of discussions. The gospel was absolutely at stake. It was critical. The issue wasn't about whether God was even going to save Gentiles because that was established. The question was how they were going to be saved. Could they enter into the kingdom of God directly without having to walk through this vestibule of Judaism. The church in Jerusalem was gathered to consider this huge question. The first part of Acts 15 records a serious conversation that unfolded between Paul and Barnabas and the Jerusalem church. And having been confronted with a serious threat to the unity of the church, as well as to the entire Christian mission, the church in Antioch wisely made the decision to send Paul and Barnabas, this dynamic duo, send them to Jerusalem to settle the question once and for all. How are people saved? And I love what this dynamic duo did on their way back. So they're traveling from Asia Minor, traveling hundreds of miles on foot. And what do they do? Every city they stop in. They don't just pass by, find a Motel 6 and just say Motel 8, Motel 6, whatever it is, 6. And they don't just stop along the way, get their rest and move along. What do they do? They are boasting. They are boasting in Christ about everything that he has done. Everywhere that they stop, everywhere that they walk, what are they doing? They are telling about what God has been doing in the Gentiles, what God has been doing in and through them, retelling 
repeating over and over God's grace to the Gentiles under their ministry. But there were some who were deeply convicted that the Gentile converts needed to become Jewish if they would ever fully enter into God's people. Every man, every Gentile man was listening carefully to this conversation. This was not anymore just a worship, you know, how do, how do we, are we strumming the guitar, are we playing the drum? This was circumcision. And not only just the issue of circumcision, because we know that Paul had Timothy circumcised so that he would not be a, a hindrance to their, their gospel, uh, their, their evangelism, what was going on there. But what was at stake was not just circumcision, but the issue of, I thought that we were saved. And now you're telling me that there's an additional requirement to our salvation. We need to understand that there's a distinction between Judaizers and genuine Jewish believers who are simply confused about the gospel. And I believe it's absolutely true for us that we, there are some of us here who are really confused about what the gospel really is. The latter group was confused about the new covenant. Specifically, they were confused about issues of continuity and discontinuity when it came to the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But the Judaizers, I believe, were unsaved and promoted salvation by works. Salvation by works. To them, John MacArthur says, circumcision and law-keeping We're not a means of salvation, but obedience after salvation. They were still committed to the ceremonial law, which had been set aside in Christ. They were much like the weaker brother in Romans 14. The weaker brother. Larry Osborne calls these accidental Pharisees. Accidental Pharisees. And there are still many around, including us. Accidental Pharisees. I've been following these laws or following these customs, which will make me holier, will make me better. And I'll get to some of it later on. We all tend to some degree, we all tend to expect that all Christians will see things like we do. Isn't that true? We expect all Christians to see exactly the way that I see things. And that their expression of Christianity should be exactly like ours. We even see that in the church shopping, right? Hopping around where we hear about what this church is doing or what that church is doing and we go, man... They're not doing things exactly, or they don't see sacraments exactly the way we do, or they don't see worship exactly the same way we do. They don't see theology the same way we do. So we start doing what? We start asking questions about whether they are maybe even really saved or whether they're really serious about Scripture. In fact, the the history of Christian missions reveals that it has suffered under this mentality for far too long. For this reason and others, This chapter in Acts is absolutely important for us to know, for us to understand. 
There's so much that we can learn here about charity and conviction when it comes to the gospel. We need to learn the importance of entering into conversations with one another over differences. This is healthy for the church and it enables us to maintain harmony. It is also essential for us as stewards of the gospel. So, once Paul and Barnabas arrived, the meeting was convened to discuss this matter with the apostles and the elders. And in verses 6 through 12, what Nathan discussed last week was due consideration was given to the subject at hand. Luke tells us that the, the apostles and the elders came together. They came together to consider this matter. The Greek term here translated, uh, the word consider translates, speaks of uh, a certain knowledge. They came together to discuss a certain knowledge and these men wanted to to get the facts they wanted to they were willing to listen to one another they were willing to question to ascertain the facts and they they were given as evidence as we shall see that god was saving the gentiles without them entering through this vestibule of judaism and i think there's an important principle for us to to understand right here is that we should always enter conflict as a student rather than a professor. Isn't that difficult? Everything about you, when you enter into a conflict, I'll talk for our marriage, I'll talk in other times when I have a disagreement or a conflict with somebody else, what do I do? Immediately, I put on the professor hat. Whether I deserve it or not, whether I have all the facts or not, I enter in as the professor and I am going to set you straight. Your dander gets up. The hair on the back of your neck gets, gets on, on edge. You, you're confronting me about this. But here, what did these elders and these, these apostles do? When the conflict came to the church, what did they do? They entered into much discussion. And they came as students, wanting to learn and question and get to the root of the issue. And I think we would be very surprised what we might actually learn when we come into conflict as students instead of professors. What did they do? They discussed the matter at hand and there was much dispute, a lot of dispute. This doesn't refer to a bitter argumentative kind of division, but to a healthy discussion, reasoning and questioning and debate. And for some time, it went back and forth. For some of you, even the word conflict scares the living daylights out of you. It gives you the willy-nillies. You you start pitting out. Your hands start getting wet. The thought of conflict and entering into a discussion where there is much debate and discussion and questioning, getting to the root of the issue, scares the living daylights out of you. What would you rather do? Avoid it absolutely avoid it but this kind of discussion whether it be about theological issues the life of the church the mission of the church the glory of god or your marriage or how you raise kids or how you deal with your co-workers is absolutely critical we got to understand that it is often necessary we need to hear one another we don't need to under, we need to understand all the issues 
This was no heated argument where, man, Peter was getting up and throwing fists and getting really angry and James was yelling back and the Judaizers, the group of the, the uh, Pharise- party of the Pharisees weren't, weren't yelling and screaming and throwing things. There was probably far more light than there was heat. Does that make sense? A lot more light brought to the discussion than heat, which is often destructive. Because they all had the same goal. And this is what the goal is. Leah, throw it up and just leave it up for a little while. The goal is this. Their goal was truth. Their goal was the health of the church. Their goal was they needed clarity about their mission. And ultimately, their greatest goal was the glory of God. They wanted God to be glorified in all that they do, whether it be in word or in deed. Everything is to be done to the glory of God. So all these things are discussed. Truth, what is the truth? What is, honestly, let's get down to it. What is the truth about the circumstances? What is the truth of Scripture? What is, we need some absolute clarity about Where are we going in this mission to the Gentiles? How do we do this and what is expected? And all this affects the health of the church, both Gentile and Judaism, and this multi-ethnic church that was soon to be coming up. And all this critical is that God is glorified. So after much discussion, they listened to some summary testimony from three different groups. First, you, you hear Peter He gives his testimony. And then you hear Paul and Barnabas. And then you hear James. Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 13 says, truth needs to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So they were following the the Christian example of how do we establish truth? How do we establish it? Well, it is by at least two or three witnesses. So first up was Peter. Peter generally is what? A hothead, right? He shoots straight from the hip and he'll tell you the way it is. So, but per his calling by Jesus, Peter rose up first to give some definite leadership. It'd be helpful to understand the chronology. Paul had previously rebuked Peter concerning this very matter. If you look in Galatians 2, Paul had already talked to Peter about his behavior of acting one way with the Jews acting another way with the Gentiles. And Paul sharply rebuked Peter about this behavior, how it is not consistent. So clearly, this apostle, Peter, had learned his lesson. And it shows something about the integrity of Peter, doesn't it? That he took the first first lead and said, listen, brothers, you know from my own very mouth that I had declared this. I had learned from what Peter, Paul had taught, God had spoke, so let me speak first about what I had learned. The typical man would have tucked tail and just said, I'm sitting here, be quiet. I did something back there and then get chewed out by him. I'm going to just sit and be quiet. But Peter took the lead. He was well qualified to speak and in fact his testimony was powerful largely because of his previous failure and the lessons he learned. So Peter spoke of God's calling him to this Gentile ministries in the early days. The time frame was at least seven to ten years since the events of Acts 10 and Acts 11. There God spoke corporately to the Gentiles by Peter's mouth. 
He was used as God's means to open up the doors of faith to the Gentiles. And, and Paul would build on this foundation. By Peter's ministry, God made no distinction between Jew and Gentile, but worked by cleansing their hearts by faith. Since God had purified Gentiles' hearts, and since he made no distinction between Jew and Gentile, the obvious implication is that Jewish hearts were just as polluted as Gentile hearts. Whether Jew or Gentile, salvation could always be by grace alone. By grace alone. In light of this lack of distinction between Jew and Gentile, Peter posed a pressing question to, the gen- to his, uh, his brothers, to the listeners. He said this, Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test? Yikes. Why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Can you hear this kind of impatient, sanctified frustration? Why are we putting God to the test? One, he spoke. God spoke and said that these people would be saved. And how, sa- how would they be saved? They would be saved by grace. And now you are putting other expectations on them to enter into the kingdom of God, to be part of God's kingdom. Why are you putting God to the test? Are you saying that God's word is not sufficient? That his way of salvation is not good enough? That we have to add to salvation? That's ridiculous. And he just has this sanctified impatience. Why are you putting God to the test? Why? If God would marvelously save the Jews by grace alone, wouldn't he act for the Gentiles in the same way, in the same manner? Here's the reality is that I believe it is critical that we as a church, a local church, and global church, that we, we are stewards of this gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We, and we, we've got to steward that gospel, that good news, that the, we don't have to add two things. And the, the church, the church must regularly meet together, convene to guard this. Week after week, you're encouraged to come together as the body of Christ called Missio Dei Church, part of a global movement of churches called the Church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. But we come together not for the purpose of just singing songs and passing the peace and teaching our kids good moral values. We come together. We gather on the Lord's Day for corporate worship to remind each other this is is the good news because what do we do? We forget and we become accidental Pharisees again. We add to. We start moving in activity instead of moving more fully into God's grace. 
Why do, why do we encourage you to become a part of a missional community? Because again, you need that reminder to come together and be, have that reinforced with brothers and sisters who will speak into your life, who will call you out, who will lovingly come alongside you and encourage you, who will bring you into the light and help you walk in the light, who will honor you and encourage you. The church is called to steward this and guard ourselves so that we ourselves don't put God to the test by adding to his amazing gospel of grace. So that was Peter's testimony. Next came Barnabas and Paul. When, when Peter got done, he, he could have probably just ended it there. and They could have just made a decision. And there was, but the amazing thing is I, I love what kind of happened here. When he finished talking, all the assembly fell silent. They heard something. His eyewitness account struck a chord. Paul and Barnabas took advantage of this silence to add their own thoughts to the mix. The question, no doubt, is in a lot of minds of whether Peter's experience with Cornelius and his household was unique as to whether or not all Gentiles would be converted in the same manner. So the testimony would go a long way to answering these concerns. So what did Paul and Barnabas do? Instead of becoming theological people where they say, well, you know, what? this is what Moses said, and then the prophet said this, and then they said this. Now you get this right, Pharisees, you know this, you know this, you know this. What did they do? They told stories. Stories. They retold what God had been doing. They retold stories. There there were testimonies of miracles and other circumstantial evidence that was brought forward. The missionaries recounted what God had done through them on their recent mission trip. And though there are some miracles that are recorded, there are probably many others that that occurred that were not recorded. So doubtless they testified to Tremendous amount of circumstantial evidence. Now, can we as a church, can we look at each other and say, hey, I got circumstantial evidence that God is doing some amazing work in Todd Pavin's life. And let me retell you all that God is doing in his life. This, this, and this. And it shouldn't be Amanda. Hopefully she should tell, be able to tell. Because she lives in the same house. But can I... Can I retell the wonders of what God is doing in Todd's life? Can I do the same thing with Pat of how she is turning from her idols and turning to God more and more in her life? And I can retell these miracles that are going on in her life. What about Michelle? Can I do the same thing with Michelle? Can I do the same thing with Jim and Jenea? That, man, these are the evidences of God's grace being poured out in these individuals' lives, in their married lives, in their work lives. Listen to these evidences. People want to know. Okay, I I hear these academic kind of things. But I want to know that it is working in your life. That God is alive and transforming your life. You can tell me all these kind of gymnastic things. Okay, you're going to church. Okay, whoop-de-doo. I go to Kiwanis. But what is God doing? Is he changing you? That's what's going on. The prayer for our church is that we will have more stories, circumstantial evidence of God's amazing power in our lives. 
And then in verses 13 through 18, this is the new section. So that's, that's up to what Nathan has done. That, so that's the kind of the back, looking back so that we can go forward. 13 through 18, James. Evidently, the chair of the council summarizes the doctrinal consideration. There was a, a different kind of evidence that he, he put before the church. Less anecdotal, less storytelling, and more doctrinal. And this is instructional for us. Before we consider James's words, let's first note that the Spirit of God was definitely at work among these leaders. I would assume that there was a holy hush created by the Holy Spirit who was guiding them into truth. Peter retelling of the early days. Paul and Barnabas telling, listen, me, let, me, let me tell you these stories. And the Holy Spirit is working and preparing their hearts and there's a holy hush in the room. And in many ways, the evidence was mounting up and producing just this foregone conclusion. Well, obviously, we got to do something with these Gentiles and they should be in. But something more was needed than circumstantial evidence. They needed conclusive proof. In our day and age, circumstantial evidence is the trump card. Right? Well, if I can show that they love each other, they should be together. Right? Circumstantial evidence. They're, they're loving folks. What about this? And list off these. There's circumstantial evidence. But they needed, the church needed more conclusive proof and this could only come by what? Scripture. Scripture. They needed biblical doctrine to conclude this manner. James called, called to the church. And I love how he's, he probably stood up. This is the, the half-brother of Jesus. He stood up, the leader in the church in Jerusalem, and said, Brothers, listen to me. One is Jesus' brother, but I'm sure as a man of a pastoral's heart. If you read the book of James, you see just a pastor's heart of how, how you should live very practically. And what does he do? He says, listen, listen to me because I'm about to explain scripture to you. We should always listen when scripture is the focus. Always listen when Scripture is the focus. We should listen to those who reason from the scriptures and give them a far more fair and preferential hearing over circumstantial evidence. Note that Paul referred to Peter's testimony. The ultimate call for them to submit was not because of what Peter had said, but because of what the prophets had written. The prophets had written. Peter's testimony was undoubtedly impressive, but the trustworthy prophetic word sealed the deal. That sealed the deal. And throw this one up for me, Leah. Scripture stands as the final arbitrator in all matters of controversy. Not circumstantial 
evidences. Scripture seals the deal. If we believe, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and therefore useful and profitable, all Scripture is breathed out. 